Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 116 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. We have three cases today, and it looks like, uh, for the immediate future at least, we'll miss some things, but that's okay. We'll try to pick three of the best cases that are out there. It seems like all the appellate courts are back in action, including uh, the Supreme Court of the United States begins uh, a week from uh, tomorrow. So, uh, for the first time in five weekends as well, I'm in Chicago taping this, which is unusual. The first case today is... So yeah, our Magellan returned. Our Magellan returned, unlike the original That's right. Magellan. So That's right. It's good. We're glad to have Magellan. Yeah, I'm glad back. to be back. Feels good. Uh, the first case today that we'll discuss is from the Illinois Appellate Court Fifth District, Swanigan versus Cade. The second case today is Ivy versus TransUnion Rental Screening Solutions Inc. from the Illinois Supreme Court on new business and the rules in Illinois for damages. And the third case today is Pura Vida Holdings, Inc. versus Reimer from the 5th District. With that, let's turn to our first case today. Mass tort turns into mass legal malpractice claim asking the following question. Can plaintiffs state a cause of action against their former lawyers for constructive fraud when they are unable to articulate specific damages that they have suffered? That is a question to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court for 5th District decides Swanigan versus Cade. The plaintiffs were previously represented by the defendant lawyers in a class action against Monsanto for PCB poisoning and agreed to a settlement that allocated money to them based upon the amount of the compound in their bloodstream. It turned out that the plaintiffs had no more PCB in their body than someone who was not exposed to the substance, and so the plaintiffs recovered about $600 each. The plaintiffs sued, contending that their former lawyers acted improperly and in entering into the settlement and then pressure the individual plaintiffs to execute the settlement agreement by misrepresenting their claims. The circuit court dismissed the Fourth Amendment complaint and the plaintiffs appealed. The defendants contend, notwithstanding the allegedly improper conduct, which they deny, uh, but for the motion to dismiss concede occurred, that the plaintiffs have suffered no damage because the plaintiffs did not prove and have not alleged that they were ever harmed by Monsanto. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this case. Thanks, Dan. And this is a really interesting situation. So when we normally think about a claim for legal malpractice, it's a claim based in tort, where the lawyer breaches the standard of care. This claim is one for constructive fraud. And it's, a, it's essentially a breach of fiduciary duty claim which is a bit different because it sounds in equity, not in law. So the question is, what do you do here? Where the allegations are that these lawyers lied to these plaintiffs in order to get them to agree to these settlements that resulted in them getting like $600 because they didn't have very much of this substance in their system. So they say, you know, we would have done a whole lot better without this settlement and you guys took... 10 million of the 20 million 
that was uh, allocated for the settlement, and we ended up with nothing, and that's not fair, and we're unhappy. Which sounds like an appealing argument. It does. But the problem is that they don't they they wouldn't be able to prove that they were actually injured. That is that. So you signed up for a class that you were, which wasn't you didn't actually suffer any injury. You wouldn't have been able to prove a claim against Monsanto. And then you got $600 that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So where's the damage? How have you been harmed? You know, it's an, it, it, a necessary element of a legal malpractice claim is that the plaintiffs show that they were damaged. In fact, we've talked about cases where if the damage has not yet accrued, then the cause of action hasn't yet accrued. And therefore, uh, the cause of action can't be stated and you have to wait till you've actually been damaged. Well, these folks, what the plaintiffs don't want to show is the usual way you show this is the case within a case. But for the malpractice by the defendant lawyers, I would have collected X. They don't want to do that. They haven't even pled that. They've simply said, you guys lied to us. You breached your fiduciary duty. You committed fraud. And therefore, we're entitled to recovery. And so I had a conversation with someone, a long conversation with someone about this. And he pointed, and he pointed out that this is a fiduciary duty claim. And the, it sounds inequity. And the remedy is disgorgement, is that they have to pay back the $10 million. And I said, well, that's, that's well, I, I don't quite get that. Because this was a certified class. Their client was the class, not these individual plaintiffs. Their job was to maximize the value of the class, all of these people. They did that, and they deserve a recovery for having done that uh, under, pardon me, under the common fund doctrine. They get to, they created the fund, they get a recovery out of that. That's how Rule 23 in the federal system works, Rule 801 in the, uh, or Section 801 of the Illinois Code of Civil Procedure works. That's how they get paid. It's the attorney's fees that drive these things. And he responded, well, yeah, but they they never, uh, they breached their fiduciary duty to these people. I said, well, how? They weren't actually damaged. Well, breach of fiduciary duty doesn't necessarily require damage. That's the point. Uh, and because it doesn't actually require damage, you end up with a very goofy remedy, which does not fit at all into what is typically a legal malpractice claim. A legal malpractice claim requires a breach of the standard of care that causes damage. And while they may have or I should say they allegedly breached their fiduciary duties. I, I don't see the damage. In fact, they don't even want to prove their damage. And so it's like trying to put a, a square hole, a square peg into a round hole. It just doesn't fit. Um, and the judges, the justices didn't seem to be understanding it either because we don't think of the fiduciary duty informs the duty that's owed and whether the standard of care was breached. But it doesn't eliminate the causation and damage elements of the cause of action. Lawyers are fiduciaries, to be sure, but to whom in the case of a class and for what in the case of a claim for legal malpractice? I, I have a very hard time wrapping my brain around how, how it would be equitable to disgorge the $10 million and give it back to whom? Who gets the $10 million? Does it go back to Monsanto? Does it go back to these plaintiffs who already got more they're, they're going to get even right. more when they never were injured in the first instance. The, the, the whole the whole claim was bull was bull in the first place. It wasn't. It was a nonsense claim against them. And just to point to, to make the point clear, there was another defendant. 
and the other defendant, they got millions of dollars from because they actually poisoned them. It wasn't Monsanto. It was this other company whose name I didn't quite understand from the uh, from the oral argument. It was these other people that did it. So you, you settled with Monsanto, not the other people. They sued the other, or they took the other people to trial, and they got big judgments. So I'm really struggling with where the where the injury is here, which is a necessary element of any legal malpractice claim in Illinois. Dan, what what are your thoughts? Pat, I agree. I have the same struggles in this case. I, I don't know, you know, how uh, how disgorgement would lead to justice for anybody, right? Like you said, there there was a defendant that was responsible, actually caused this, and and uh, these individuals to me got a, a windfall of six hundred dollars a piece. So I'm really struggling with how how there was a breach of fiduciary duty here. Um, you know, and it sounds like the class action was was may have had multiple defendants, right? That caused or alleged to have caused this kind of PCBs, and you know, like any trial, you know, the evidence and and facts and depositions and evidence may point to, you know, to, to the other defendant, like you said, and, and not to Monsanto. So yeah, I I struggle with how how this would work or or how that would be fair to anybody in this case. Um, and like you said, you know, does it go back to all the plaintiffs? Yeah, I, I, does, it, think, does it go back to the class? Does it go back to Monsanto? Which then, at the end of the day, these plaintiffs don't benefit anyway, right? Because the money goes back to, I, I just don't understand it. I, I, I don't either. Um, I, I, I get that the alleged, the person who allegedly uh, breaches their, their duty of care or their breach of their fiduciary duty doesn't deserve the money, but so what? If if they if the plaintiff wasn't actually injured, and why is it just to give the money back, uh, and to whom? I, I I just I don't understand it. Um, the we'll see what the court has to say, but I, I have a feeling this is going to get affirmed. I do too. Um, so with that, we'll take our first break and come back with segment two on episode one sixteen of the Podium and Panel podcast. Welcome back for segment two of episode 116 of the Podium and Panel Panel Podcast. And what is necessary to show damages for a new business under Illinois law? That is the issue to be decided when the Illinois Supreme Court resolves Ivy versus TransUnion Rental Screening Solutions, Inc. Under Illinois law, business losses for a new business are speculative and thus unrecoverable unless the plaintiff can show damages with reasonable certainty. In Ivy, the defendant is alleged to have breached its contract with the plaintiff in the development of an online lease product. The defendant successfully argued to the circuit court that, and, the, and to the appellate court that, there, that the market for this product was new, such that the plaintiff's business was too new for damages to be ascertained. The plaintiff asserts that since the alleged breach, since the alleged breach of market has developed and that using the success of that market, one can extrap- extrapolate with sufficient certainty despite the differences in the product's of this kind to show damages are not speculative. Dan, why don't you tell us about this oral argument? Sure, Pat, and a couple of things. One is is that uh, when they when, when when the appellant was talking about this case, the uh, original contract between Ivy or Helix, which Ivy is the founder of Helix, and and the TransUnion right. entity that was backed by TransUnion uh, with the trust. That, that as in that TransUnion. As in that TransUnion. 
the the Pritzker's uh, TransUnion. Um, yeah, I don't know if you knew that, but yeah, Marmon Group owns TransUnion, TransUnion, all that stuff. But in any event, um, it goes back to 2009, and what it, what it involves, Pat, is electronic leases. So uh, back in my days when uh, I was a caveman law student, back in the early 90s, the equivalent of this would have probably been the order from Hoarder uh, contracts. You could go buy order from Hoarder, which no longer exists, but you could go buy form contracts. And my contracts professor I always ranted about them, about how uh, inappropriate they were and unauthorized practice of law. In uh, any event, the uh, individual... Something like yeah. Google Zoom. And so the appellant talked about and open with the, with the statement that lost profits to an extent will always be uncertain and not subject to precision, and that there's an exception, as you talked about, Pat, in the new business world, where uh, for new business, if you can establish to a reasonable degree of certainty, uh, not based on speculation, but based on facts, uh, the damages you can, in fact, recover. The... Um, Justice, I believe, was was Overstreet, but uh, it may not have been. I didn't didn't note it. Um, asked a, it was very hard to hear the Supreme Court was, this week. The, the the volume was very low on the justices' it microphones. Was, it was really hard, even in a quiet right. room, and the volume turned all up. You couldn't hear many of the justices. Very difficult in the hearings. In any event, uh, the justice asked the question about the, uh, this exception, if it had to be. Uh, it's precluded to recover unless it was willful or unintentional, and the, the appellant conceded that that was, in fact, the case. So what happened here? Um, the, the, this individual, Ivy, uh, he, he was on the board of, of the TransUnion Trust, I think was the acronym they kept using, Trust or Trust, which is the uh, contracts from TransUnion. Uh, this is in 2009, so again, you go way back uh, to a time when you know, the internet wasn't quite what it is today. And the idea here was that these are leases uh, that were standard leases for um, for landlords of, of, you know, individual apartments and condos. And uh, Ivy was on the board and the, the advisory board. And one of the things the appellant distinguished was that uh, the forms that Helix created were eight and a half by 11. The TransUnion forms were on legal paper. Uh, the font was very small on the uh, TransUnion sheets and, and things of that nature. As you mentioned, Pat, back back in 2009, so Helix enters into a contract with TransUnion uh, to, uh, to distribute these contracts. It never gets off the ground, though, for whatever reason. There's uh, it, it never happens. And so there's an alleged breach of contract by TransUnion. TransUnion on summary judgment says, hey, uh, there's this rule in Illinois that you have to establish damages, uh, and and so uh, that that's the crux here. The appellant, as you said, talks about the fact that Zillow and a lot of other uh, services today uh, provide uh, these electronic leases. The issue with Zillow, which is a public company, is that they do not, in fact, separately publish what they get in revenues from this line of business. Probably for good reason because it's probably not a, a significant line. You know, the rules of the SEC and reporting are that any significant segments on a materiality basis have to be reported. So again, probably Zillow's not making a ton of money on these leases. Um, and and so a um, lot, lot of discussion. There was a case uh, that the uh, Supreme Court decided several years ago, Milex, uh, which was a pharmaceutical case. And in, in rebuttal, uh, one of the justices said, but in that case, 
uh, that there were identical, identical pharmaceuticals being sold. And so we had a very good uh, indication of the market and the profitability. Um, and these rules are in place for a very good reason. Uh, if you're a new business, a new startup, and as Pat and I have discussed at some points, uh, some of my business involves supporting startups. The problem with startups, of course, no matter what line of business they're in, if they, they might be the, the, the best competitor to whatever, uh, the issue becomes, though, is if they're not actually doing business, which uh, Helix, uh, from the argument, was not actually conducting business. It was about to launch, um, and some of the justices kind of pushed back with the appellant saying, well, in cases where we have, in fact, found this exception, uh, these businesses were in business, um, and so they, they at least had some run rate or, or something. Uh, because the problem with new businesses is, again, it's speculative, right? And, and without, uh, without being... It's a whole lot of reasons why businesses right? fail. And some of them have nothing to do with the product not being right, good. Right. Maybe management was bad. Maybe the employees stunk. Maybe a lot of things. And again, you know, the, the one thing that that uh, uh, the appellant argued and, and talked about was there were affidavits of not only Ivy, uh, that he was familiar with the NAA lease, which was the TransUnion one, uh, but also there were a couple of experts. There was an expert, Paul Cohen, who was also on the committee, talked about a large demand, and there was an opinion of Dr. Stan Smith, a PhD, and economics from the University of Chicago, talking about the market releases in general and, and U.S. Census data and re rental units. Um, the now there's 17 companies that are out there. Helix was the second to the market, and again never got off the ground. Um, and again, I, I think in this case, uh, the the appellate court uh, was the first district, if, if memory serves correctly, and and Justice Hyman wrote the opinion. Um, you know, again, citing to uh, the challenges here where, where Helix did not, in fact, have any business, the fact that 13 years later or 12 years later, we have a robust market for electronic leases. Uh, like you said, Pat, companies can fail for a lot of reasons. Um, and it, it didn't seem, at least from what I heard from the, the, the experts or oral arguments uh, about oral experts, that they had actually... Uh, been able to pinpoint like, you know, here's the market and that Helix would have had a 2% market share or 4% market share if they got off the ground. Um, and so, um, you know, the, the, uh, on rebuttal, I think, uh, after the appellees, uh, council talked about, look, what, what the what appellant, even though they say that they want the rule of law to say the same, they want this, uh, exception to be narrow. What they're really asking for is the rule of law may be the same, but extensions and more factors and all kinds of things. And I think on rebuttal, uh, the justices really pushed back on the appellant's advocate asking them about some of this. You know, what exactly are you asking us to do here? Are you asking us to discard uh, our, our long precedent in this arena and, uh, you know, add additional factors or, or add additional uh, subjective elements to uh, this arena. And so um, I, th I think the appellant in this case is going to have a tough time overcoming those hurdles. I, I, I think so. But I also will say that if what happened is what is alleged that that uh, TransUnion, you know, breached a contract somehow that caused them to lose their business. Yeah. It's plain that the product has become you know, products like it have become a success. I, I, I'm not so sure it's too speculative. Yeah. I, I think they've got 
Um, I, I'm not too sure. Those that will recognize, those that practice will recognize Stan Smith. Usually you find him in, uh, in tort cases opining on um, lost future wages. Interesting to hear him uh, doing this. I mean, certainly within his bailiwick, but uh, that's the usual place where we hear Stan Smith's yeah. name. I think you might be right, Pat. I mean, yeah. If did they breach the contract? It appears they did. I guess the question would then be, how do you how do you measure damages? But well, that's how they got out on yeah. summary judgment. So, so with that, we'll take our our second break and come back with our third segment uh, discussing. Uh, pardon me, discussing Pura Vita versus Reimer, and several other matters as is our usual custom in the third segment of the show. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment three of episode 116. We're covering Pura Vida and some other normal segment three elements. How late is too late to raise a motion for disqualification? Whose responsibility is it to determine if there's a conflict? Those are among the issues the Illinois Appellate Court 5th District will address when it decides Pura Vida Holdings, Inc. versus Reimer. The planners filed a motion to disqualify after the first day of trial after five years of litigation, arguing that he had met with counsel to the, for the defendants to determine if that lawyer could represent him in related litigation. The defendants asserted that the plaintiffs had waited too long to raise the issue and that they would be severely prejudiced if they were made to obtain new counsel at the late stage of the proceedings. The circuit court denied the motion to disqualify and the matter proceeded to verdict with the defendants prevailing. The plaintiffs then appealed. Pat, tell us about oral argument. So these are people that really, really, really like to sue each other. And they're family members, too. There are like 20 cases, and that's not an exaggeration. They couldn't, the lawyers couldn't even enumerate all of the cases where these family members are suing Living each other. Living the Pure Vita Loca. So this one particular, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. This case actually involves consolidated appeals. So they can't even get an appeal with only one case. And these appeals involve cases that are from 2012 and 2013. I, I just, it's crazy. So they're fighting over a piece of land. What they're fighting about is really not the interesting issue. It's, you know, for our purposes. The interesting issue is, and there's other issues in the appeal as well, but the really interesting issue is the one that Dan highlighted, which is this motion for disqualification. So the, at the end of the first day, one of the plaintiffs says to his lawyer, says, hey, I talked to that guy, that guy being the defense lawyer, about representing me in some some of the related litigation. And apparently everything's related to this litigation because all these people do is sue each other. Um, Thanksgiving at that house must be real interesting. And so they, they uh, bring a motion to disqualify defense counsel. Now, this is a bench trial, if, I, if, I, if I'm okay, understanding right. this correctly. And the court, so you can take breaks to deal with things like this. But this is a bit bizarre. Five years into the litigation, you realize that the other guy's lawyer you had a conversation with once upon a time about representing him, representing you maybe 
and it, he missed the conflict. Uh, now, if he had brought the this motion four years prior, three years prior, maybe, but in the middle of trial after five years of litigation, I, I don't. The prejudice is so extreme at this point, and I'm not sure what prejudice the plaintiff has really suffered by having the defendant represented by somebody who, from what we can tell from the oral argument, had a very short conversation about representing him in that matter. Uh, who knows why they didn't ultimately take on the representation, but you know, any number of reasons why. I, Dan, you and I both work at rather large law firms. Uh, you know, you think your firm's got well over 100 and we've got nearly right. 300. Um, I can't imagine recording a conflict Every time I get a call from somebody saying, is this a matter you might be able to handle for us? If I have to run a conflict every time and we're disqualified every time I have a conversation where I have, if it's maybe this happens once a week, someone yep. will call and say, can you handle this matter? And you go, yeah, this is really, I can't handle this. Um, you, you need to call somebody else. You need, here's somebody that can handle this kind of a matter. Um, if we had to record every time that call, that's all I would do. Our poor conflict people, our, our poor conflict people would come in and, and, and wring my neck if every time I had a conversation with someone where I told them after five minutes I couldn't couldn't represent them for any number of reasons uh, that that we uh, that we had to run a conflict check every yeah. time, um, and, and so that would go into the hopper and just create. I, I just can't. It would shut firms down pretty quickly because um, you know think think of you know firms that do a lot of M&A or, or like you said, any kind of litigation, anything, right? You get a, you get a call, you're Kirkland and Ellis and you get a call from somebody. And, and if you take yeah. the call that, that talk about a really big fall well, now, then that's yeah. a conflict. I mean, then what, you know, I mean, people would start to, people yeah. would start to do this kind of stuff like they used to do with uh, back in the leverage buyout thing and, and retain people just so that they couldn't be opposite, you know, um, I mean, just just think about it. You, you'd have some sophisticated uh, litigants calling up law firms all the time because they don't want you to have to represent anybody, right? And then you're 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 boxed out. Well, I mean that it, that that can happen. Yeah. And if you remember back to Sopranos, that's what Tony Soprano did when he was going <laughs> to divorce Carmela. He goes to all the divorce lawyers in town in order to conflict them all out. And and what happens is they raise the conflict like during the first conversation. Right. It's like, no, I've spoken with Tony. I can't represent you, Carmel. And as I said, if this happened like the first day that or the very early on in the litigation, that's one thing. But you're talking about five years later. I, there's just, there's just no way it's, I agree that it's the, it's the lawyer's responsibility to keep track of who he has 1.6 information yep. from and, and do that. But the plaintiff at some point has to take some responsibility to know who he's spoken to and say that lawyer is conflicted and not try to use it for what appears to be. I don't know this for sure, but it certainly was the suggestion of the defendants trying to play a game and try. And, 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 and I think that's what the trial court saw it, thought it was, was trying to play a game. And things were going well. So we'll say the plaintiff's lawyer, can't, or the, yeah, the defense lawyer is disqualified. That's what we'll do. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's how the law should work. Um, but we'll see. Uh, this will be an important issue, an important ruling for how you run a law firm in Illinois. Uh, Dan, anything else to add on this no, one? I think we covered it. Okay, so let's go to turn to uh, business interruption for COVID nineteen coverage. Yep. Dan, 
Uh, a big development, uh, the, the Vermont Supreme Court has held that a uh, insured can get past a motion to dismiss. Yep. Not that they won, not that there's coverage, but that they get past a motion to dismiss and they get to take the case through discovery and trial. Uh, this is the first, uh, so six states have come down, are there's no possibility of coverage, and this is the first state to say, well, right. maybe. Uh, and, and we'll, it'll go we'll back. It'll go back. Not, Dan, anything else to add on no, this? No, you know, anything no, else it'll go back for this? discovery, and then, you know, we'll probably see it again at motion for summary judgment at some point, and then, you know, if it can survive that, or, and we'll see. But like you said, the first of many states, last week we talked about some, some key states that had uh, rejected this kind of argument. And so, again, um, I think everybody's always said that, you know, that there's going to be not a, not a, a unanimous 100% across the board. There may be some some states that find it, but like you said, a long way to go still in this case. It's not it's not like it's a, a win. It, it, I mean, it's a win, but it's it's a long way to go for any any real win. That's right. So with that, uh, we'll do our prediction sure to go wrong for this past week. We are now 174 and a half, 34 and a half, and 10. We were three and two this past week. Um, the first one we got right was Magdabola versus Kogan. More legal malpractice. Um, the uh, there. This is a case where some lawyers left a firm, a plaintiff's firm, and the allegation was is that they had done some pre-solicitation activity, pre-departure solicitation of clients, and the court held there wasn't evidence of that, nor was there evidence of pre of uh, of pre-departure solicitation of staff and associates. Um, an application of the Dowd and Dowd versus Gleason case, which is the leading case certainly in Illinois and, and one of the leading cases nationally on how a lawyer has to conduct themselves when they're leaving um, their law firm. Uh, Dan, anything else, anything to add on the Mactable yep, matter? That's, that covers it, I think. So the next one was one we got wrong, or at least I did, because this was a solo yep. episode from episode 114. Both the McDowell case was also from episode 114. And this was Nutter versus Schiller, McCanto, and Fleck. This is a case where the plaintiff, uh, the plaintiff was a, in a divorce, and his lawyers, now the defendants in the legal malpractice case, filed a fee petition. They won the fee petition. But in response to that fee petition, the lawyer or the, the plaintiff filed a legal malpractice counterclaim that was not ruled on, nor was the petition to for fees stayed pending the uh, outcome of the legal malpractice claim. And the court held that there wasn't a sufficient record to determine if the court had erred in finding that race judicata applied. So some lessons here regarding how to do this, when to do this, and to get a good record sufficient record for the court to find that there might be error because everything was done orally and there wasn't a bystander's report or a, or a transcript. Um, anything else to add on that one, Dan? Nope. That's it. Which brings us to an Illinois Supreme Court case, uh, Kiros versus the CTA, which we got right. Dan, why don't you tell us about this This was case? a case where the individual was uh, uh, not detectable. He was behind a... Uh, pillar or something on a CTA uh, eventually fell on the tracks. This is the case where the, the trains did not stop, even though, you know, the, the allegations was that they should have stopped and uh, uh, not ran over him. And the Illinois Supreme Court agreed with the 
appellate court that there's no legal duty owed to. No, no, they no, they agree with the circuit, circuit court. court. The yeah, appellate right. court had found that that's there right. was a duty. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I forget who, who who was on that appellate panel, um, but we covered it in episode ninety six. I, I don't remember, remember, but they right the uh, I don't remember who was on the original appellate panel. There wasn't an oral argument at right. the appellate court. They ruled that's on right. the papers, and the uh, this case is a reaffirmation of the open and obvious doctrine, which is we've talked about a lot recently and is, and is really, uh, really a very important, uh, really a very important decision. There's been a series of these decisions, Anderson versus CTA and the Kiro's case. And there's one other one I'm forgetting the name, but another one that CTA prevailed on um, in this vein. For, so a very important decision, not only for the CTA, but more yeah, for those that don't know about the CTA and, and the, you know, the, uh, subway stops and the train stops and even Metra, there's there's a very uh, distinguishable uh, painted kind of rough edged, uh, probably about eighteen inches wide or something, uh, that 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 people are um, told repeatedly over the phone systems. That, you know, for, on Metra for sure, but I think on CTA when I write it as well, please stand behind the yellow line on CTA, stand behind the blue line. On Metra, uh, for this very reason, right? That that uh, you know uh, these trains come in, that they're well. Yeah, this guy, this guy crawled right. into he the crawled tunnel, tunnel. And went into one of right. the alcoves and hit right. out for a while. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if you see, if you, it's all different. If you thing. watch like Marvel comics or stuff, I think I can't remember which Marvel comic, but you know they're always in the alcoves and uh, and one of those movies and trains and stopping and maybe Spider Man or one of those. So, yeah. Yeah, don't, no, do, don't that. do that. Which which brings us to Midwest Sanitary versus Sandberg Phoenix and Von Gontard, which is another legal malpractice case. Uh, full disclosure: I wrote an amicus brief in support of the appellant, uh, the appellants in this case, on behalf of the Illinois Defense Council, and this did not go well. <laughs> we we lost. Uh, the court held that, unlike plaintiffs' lawyers, defense lawyers can be held liable for recovered or punitive damages that are assessed against their clients. Um, I, I'm going to write about this along with the Kiro's case in my column for the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin this week, as these are two issues I've written about quite a lot. Uh, so I'm going to turn it over to Dan so I don't say something stupid, uh, which I am wont to do, as everyone knows. Dan, why don't you tell us about the Midwest Sanitary case? Sure. And it, uh, the circuit court had denied the defendant attorney's motion to dismiss and had certified a question for immediate appeal pursuant to Illinois Supreme Court Rule 308. The question was, does Illinois public policy on punitive damages and or the statutory prohibition on punitive damages found in 735 LCS 5-2-1115 bar recovery of incurred punitive damages in a legal malpractice case where the client alleges that, but for the negligence of the attorney in the underlying case, the jury in the underlying case would have returned a verdict awarding either no punitive damages or punitive damages in a lesser sum, end quote. Uh, the appellate court answered the question in the negative and affirmed the judgment of the circuit court. Uh, the Supreme Court allowed uh, the defendant attorney's petition for leave to appeal pursuant to Illinois Supreme Court Rule 315, uh, and they answered the certified question in the negative. So those punitive damages are not barred. 
they affirm the judgment of the appellate court and remand the cause to circuit court for further proceedings. And like you said, Pat, it seems, uh, as you wrote in your amicus brief, as we talked about at the time when we discussed uh, oral arguments, as much uh, discussion was had on social media and in, in, in a lot of venues, uh, this seems to create a two-pronged uh, legal malpractice in Illinois. Um, and so uh, the, 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 this, in my view, is going to have a very chilling effect on defense attorneys because um, if punitive damages are alleged in a case um, or uh, uh, you've got a client that, that's, that, that's involved, um, our exposure is going to, you know, on the defense side is, is going to become more, more significant. And it's, uh, 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 you know, for the reasons, you know, again, that you, you and others in the briefs and in the arguments argued why, why this is a, a bad public policy, uh, for, uh, whatever reason, uh, the court disagreed with that. And so, uh, this will go back and it'll be interesting to see how this gets applied and again, how, you know, uh, you know, I don't know if our engagement letters will need to change. I don't know how you even go about this, you know, um, honestly. I, I have no idea. I know insurance rates are going up for defense lawyers. Um, and, and that was one of the issues that was raised in the TRIG decision. I mean, ironically, TRIG decision deals with this situation. And that was principally the court's reasoning was it was, well, it was too speculative to figure out what punitive damages were when you were trying to assess them as uncollected punitive damages in the underlying case. Yes, that was a completely separate issue in the TRIG case that we've dealt with in the Ivy case on a new right. business. That has nothing to do with whether, yes, these were assessed punitive damages. That means that Midwest Sanitary did what they were alleged to have done. They did the awful thing that led to the punitive damages. And now they've got a lawyer that's indemnifying for it. They're going to be made potentially to indemnify them for it. And the court says, well, those are compensatory damages in the legal malpractice case. Yeah, they're punitive damages (laughs) against Midwest that they now have insurance for. Um, And the court really didn't deal with the insurance rate issue. And it didn't squarely deal with the public policy issue other than to say it wasn't violative of public policy. Um, it's it's a really it's a very disappointing decision, but it is the law. So there we are. Which brings us to our last decision this week, which we got right, Cretella versus Ascon. The court found that there was an implied right of action for a, uh, a claim for discharging someone for not agreeing to agree to key man insurance or in this case, key woman insurance, and that they uh, they could go send the case back after it was dismissed, finding that there was a cause of action that could be stated under Section 224.1 of the Illinois Insurance Code for discharging someone in violation of that section of the of the insurance code. Uh, anything to add on that decision, no. Dan? All right. So why don't you tell us about the rule of the yeah, week? Yeah, it involves the Illinois Supreme Court and... The Illinois Supreme Court has a very unique uh, way of addressing vacancies. Recently, Justice uh, uh, Ann Burke uh, announced her retirement in in October. What happens in Illinois is that Illinois law, like I said, is unique. I think only one other state does it like this, uh, provides that the appointed justice 
who must come from the district in which the vacancy arises is to serve until the next general or judicial election in the state. And so uh, the retiring justice can recommend to the rest of the Supreme Court justices who his or her replacement should be. In this case, uh, when Justice Burke announced her retirement, she recommended uh, my friend and, and current Illinois Appellate Court Justice Joy Cunningham. Joy Cunningham, the rule is, is that she will now serve until the next general election, which is in 2024. Uh, and Burke, I think, Justice Burke had, I think, six years left on her uh, term. Um, and so, like I said, she's retiring. Um, and that's, that's how it goes. Uh, an interesting fact is that uh, of the current justices on the Supreme Court, I think six of them were appointed before they got elected. Uh, in similar fashions, when, when Justice Freeman retired, he appointed uh, Justice Neville, uh, and that, that's how it goes. And so, um, very strange process indeed, because you know it's not part of the electric uh, electoral process. It's uh, and it's had complaints and attacks over the years. Uh, the only the only caveat on the person that replaces it has to come from the same. Uh, the, that that person has to come from the same district for the retiring justice. In Illinois, the other thing that's kind of wonky is that we don't really follow the one vote, one uh, one person, one vote, uh, because in Cook County we get four of the seven justices, and then three, 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 and then uh, there's there's four other districts in the in the state of Illinois that are. Uh, as Pat and I talked about on a previous rule of the week, got rejiggered uh, last year, I think it was. Uh, and so those elections will take place this fall uh, for the other uh, seats. So uh, an interesting rule of the law, rule of the week. And I don't know what the other state is, but like I said, most states, they'll have a special election. They'll do some kind of runoff election like we saw in Wisconsin back uh, during the pandemic, like we see in other states when there's an opening here. Uh, we do it the old-fashioned political <laughs> Chicago style. Uh, appoint your successor. Seems appro it seems appropriate that you get to appoint your successor, and they obviously have a leg up because now they've served for a period of time. Um, as when Justice Neville, Justinville rather got got appointed by following Justice Freeman's retirement, he then gets to serve for a couple of years, and then he runs in a packed right. election, a primary really, uh, uh, eight. People, seven or eight people are running against him. He, he, he and he wins uh, what amounts to a retention. So then he gets to serve the full term, uh, full ten year term. So we have this very, very unusual system, but it's it Illinois, is. so it why not? Um, <laughs> so with that, uh, we will take our leave. Thank you everybody for joining us this week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. We'll see you next week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters 
at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firm's for which they work or their clients.